today we have Walter Cole. He is the managing director of StellaMonroe.com, and he's also the founder of Arl Tree. Hey, how you doing, Walt? I'm doing great. How you doing? Doing well. Welcome to the startup. Appreciate it. So, Walter, just give me a little overview of the two projects that you're working on, and uh, so our listeners can, can get familiar with what you're doing. Sure. So, I'm currently working on two different projects. Uh, one is kind of the uh, social media manager and brand manager of, as you mentioned, Stella Monroe. And that is kind of a fashion line geared towards women. And uh, we can talk about that in further detail a little later. And then the other uh, company is called The Aural Tree. And that, uh, I've had that for a while, but we are kind of doing somewhat of a rebranding. Um, and uh, that is basically a full-service media production company that provides sound design, um, voiceover talent, and copywriting services for a lot of short-form videos, radio, print, and uh, other different media. So let's let's start with Tree. Sure. So the Tree is something I came up with several years ago. Um, my background initially was in music. I'm a composer. Um, jazz jazz based and it came out of kind of a frustration with that you know even as a performer even the top names don't get appreciated like they need to but there's a huge market for composition uh, in the commercial space and uh, I wanted to try to take advantage of of that and so yeah that's how it that's how it came about Walter, now I, I know a little bit about you, and you are a professional musician, but you don't seem to uh, talk about that much. Uh, can you actually expound on that a little bit? So, yeah, I appreciate the compliment for I used to be really involved in the music scene. Um, my principal instrument was the saxophone, and then later kind of picked up the piano. I think I don't t highlight it a lot because I feel like these days everyone's a producer, everyone's a musician, everyone you know, says they play an instrument, and nine times out of ten, uh, you know, they're not very good. So I, I kind of just keep it to myself, and if you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't. I don't know if that's a great idea, but that's what I've been doing. Let's talk a little bit about your background, because you have a pretty diverse background. So uh, I actually grew up in Germany. My mother was a teacher for the Department of Defense over there, so we lived there for about 14 years. Moving to college, I initially was going to be a music major, a jazz studies. The reason why I asked that question is I wanted to understand how your experience living in Germany shaped you musically. And right. how that, you know, played a role into identifying this opportunity with Arl Tree. Germany is a beautiful country. I think it's one of the underrated countries. You know, when you think of Europe, a lot of people automatically think of France and Paris and Spain, uh, maybe Italy. From my vantage point, Germany is one of the, the most gorgeous countries there is, a little bit of everything. And one of the things I really missed and took away from that is they really have a, a great appreciation from the arts there. And I think that's really where my love of music um, kind of evolved from. 
So now let's get into some of the specifics of, uh, of, of Tree. So you said that you provide music composition, jingles for, for businesses, as well as I know there's a product that you're working on. So can you kind of go down those three, shed a little light on those, those services? You know, as a kid, I had uh, a, a good childhood buddy and we would used, we used to make up these little jingles just for fun. And what happened was, uh, later while I was in college, um, I dated a young lady, very talented, that attended the Berkeley School of Music in Boston. And uh, one day she called me up and she said, hey, Walt, you're not going to believe this, but there's actually a course for jingle writing and, and like commercial music. And she said, you really need to look into it um, because there's an actual market for this. I know you're. this is something you do and you do it pretty well. And so that's initially how it started. Okay, so that's that's interesting how you got involved into the commercial jingle space. Talk a little bit about why you feel that jingles are important and what marketing advantage that they have in business right now. Sure. So for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of advertisers and companies and brands have seemed to have gotten away from the traditional jingle, which I have never really understood because even now if I say, give me a break, Give me a break. I bet you, you and 90% of our audience would know the rest of that, right? Give me a break at that Kit Kat bar. Exactly, exactly. Or if I do the uh, five, $5, $5, $5 loan. Exactly, right? So these are things, and mind you, these are campaigns um, that were 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they still ring very fresh, just as fresh in the, in the consumer's mind today as they did 20, 30 years ago. Okay. But for whatever reason, um, companies have seemed to have gotten away with that. They're, um, and I, I don't understand. Um, you know, having a jingle, having a memorable tagline is something, as you see, that will will stick with your consumer even when they're not looking at your product, even when they're not visually in the store uh, with the product in front of you. It's something that, like I said, has a lasting effect. And so the Arl Tree is kind of a way to um, bring that back and, and, and try to popularize it again because it's such a, a huge – it's such a it's, – it's the best way to get – It's you can get the most bang out of your buck by getting a very effective jingle. And, um, okay. yeah, it, and it, it, it always baffles me how much, you know, even marketing uh, managers or um, business owners don't realize that. Now, talk a little bit about the composition and then the, the product that you're working on for Arltree. Sure. So one of the, um, I mentioned we're doing kind of like a re- rebranding thing. And what that's going to target is basically doing more short form videos, um, particularly like Kickstarter videos, things of that nature. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware, but the SEC just officially cleared crowdfunding. Right. Um, yeah. The, with yeah. That? Right. Yes, I have. There's actually a, a article I, I tweeted about saying that those rules were finalized. The legislation had been written and then there's going to be a 90 day comment period. And then right. those rules should go into effect. I'm actually looking for someone that's very familiar with that space, potentially a lawyer that's working on the SEC uh, problem of crowdfunding and, and how. They can advise on that to have them on the show to talk uh, about the details there. But yes, so um, with that ruling, I know it's gonna it's gonna change the uh, the landscape for investors. Yeah, it, it's a game changer, and uh, for sure, in order yes. to make a really efficient crowdsourcing campaign, 
you have to have a really good video. So one of the um, the verticals we're going to look at, and I think it's going to be huge for us, is that Kickstarter uh, crowdsourcing platform that, you know, I think is, is a game changer and is going to take off. Um, so that's something that we're really going to concentrate on um, in the next few months. I'm wondering how this SEC ruling is actually going to affect how these cryptocurrency type startups, how they raise money because they become more reliant because they've been doing it uh, before. But now such that legislation out, they may be able to do it in such a way without fear of, you know, the the regulators coming back on them and, and charging them with some kind of securities fraud or securities uh, issues around that. And I know that they had to have been very careful. They had to be very careful in how they structure their uh, fundraising efforts and not designate it as equity, but make it uh, almost like as a feature to use software once the software was developed and in, in, in other kinds of forms. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that, that ruling affects those as well. With the creating of the the videos and and the jingles, then the the last area uh, that you that you spoke about was that you were working on a product. So I'm working on a component that will bridge the gap between music and technology. Um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, we have a really uh, great emerging startup scene and tech scene that's you know growing by leaps and bounds every quarter. Um, we are constantly the top five or ten in so many different things. One of those things is tech. And so this new project that I'm working on, I have not named it yet, but is, is a way to kind of merge those two things. Eventually what it's, it's looking to be is a, a marketplace rather that pairs music instructors with students in an easier way. Particularly what's the demographic for this product? The ideal demographic is for um, intermediate to advanced players. And I say that because so many music apps in the marketplace are geared towards beginners, people just starting out that are not very proficient in their instrument. This idea is going to be towards your players that are already more advanced and kind of know the theory, have the technical proficiency already. And it's going to give them a, a way to kind of advance their studies, study with people that may, they may not have normally been able to access. Say I'm a, a you know, an intermediate drummer and Say there is a drummer that I, I admire, uh, one I can think of, uh, Larnell Lewis of uh, Snarky Puppies. Would it be that, say he's on on that marketplace and offering his services, then mm -hmm. I would contact him and then through the platform, we would do lessons and he would help me to advance my chops. What is the benefit for the accomplished musician to to come on to the marketplace and uh, and to provide the service? At the end of the day, you know, your career musicians are entrepreneurs, right? They're always looking for another stream of revenue. That's why they, they tour. That's why they teach at universities. That's why they have workshops and clinics. That's why they have books. That's why they sell CDs. And so what we're looking to do is just give them an, another way to make some money, another stream of revenue for the, the already accomplished musician. Uh, in addition, it's going to give them a way to even, to grow their fan base even more. Uh, is there anything else about Arl Tree that you'd like to discuss that we haven't touched on already? I will say if you are doing a Kickstarter campaign or anything else on a different uh, crowdsourcing platform to definitely consider us. Okay, let's uh, let's transition a, a bit into uh, Stella Monroe. Tell our listeners what is Stella Monroe and uh, 
what you're doing with that particular project and, and your role? So Stella Monroe is, uh, as I mentioned, a, a fashion um, brand, um, specializes mostly in makeup bag accessories, tote bags, uh, scars, things of that nature. So Stella Monroe is kind of a revival of that era in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where women were real Renaissance women. They were, um, you know, great at a lot of things. They carried themselves with a lot of class and grace. For people that aren't familiar with that, I always say think of Audrey Hepburn, uh, Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Ava Gardner, um, women of that caliber. With today's Instagram culture and Instagram models, you know, women are being made famous being half naked taking pictures, right? We wanted to try to get away from that and really go back to the time where um, a woman was well-rounded, well-versed, um, a worldly woman, right? And so that we try to reflect that in the brand, not only in, like I said, the fabrics we choose but and the designs we use. Number one, I think that's a, definitely a, a noble effort in that to, to bring back the sophistication of women and, and how they carry themselves, uh, considering this day and age in, in social media. But in contrast to that, how do you think that you're going to be able to sell that idea to women? Because, you know, we're kind of going down another path. So what do you think the challenge is, is going to be in order to market your your products to a demographic that may not be as familiar or may not even see the need for um, for what you're offering? You know, that's a really great question, and I'm going to be completely honest. That's something, a challenge that we're, we've been, you know, talking about um, ever since its inception. As far as our initial push, we have a certain demographic that we want to go for, women that we think are probably already do this because, you know, I don't want to sit there and say, you know, all women are like this or all women are like that. You know, we have for as many Instagram models we have, and there's nothing wrong with that. um, We still, we have, you know, probably two and three times as many women that exhibit some of the qualities that we uh, look for at Stella Monroe. So, so you, you spoke a bit about say the, the, the product line from handbags to scarves and, and, and a few more accessories. Can you talk a bit about how you all got into that specifically? Uh, sure. So one of the big things is, like I said, this is for the worldly woman, the Renaissance woman, the woman that's probably on the go. We see some of our, our demographics as, you know, well-to-do businesswomen that may be traveling a lot, right? And they okay. may need, uh, you know, traveling accessories. So a makeup bag, a jewelry bag, uh, things of that nature. Um, that was really one of the big premises behind it. So number one, who designs product line? Uh, who's, who's in charge of that? And, how did that come about? And uh, secondly, how do you source uh, your materials and, and the manufacture of these bags? Right. So the um, very talented designer, she likes to stay under the pseudonym Stella Monroe for now. But uh, I've known her for several years, and she initially was doing these kind of just for fun. Um, and she would show them to her family and friends, and they would love them and say, would you make me one? Would you make me one? And it got to be to the point where uh, the demand was getting so high that we said, we why don't we just try to take this thing to the market because it seems to be doing so well within our small circle. In terms of the manufacturing, uh, one of the things that sets us apart is the fact that everything is handmade, hand-sewn, hand-stitched, um, customized. 
so we, we pick out the fabrics ourselves. Um, we do the designs ourselves um, and, and, and do everything. Like I said, everything is customized. Okay. All right. So handmade and it's custom. Okay, great. How can I actually source one of these from you all? Yeah. So we uh, currently uh, are on Etsy. Um, you can also follow us on our social media ha- handles. Our Instagram and Twitter uh, handles are at Stella Monroe underscore. And then you can go to our Facebook page, which is Hey Stella Monroe. Again, there's no E at the end of Monroe. So with that, um, kind of going back to the marketing a bit, because a lot of our listeners, the, they're interested in, in startup companies. So how do you market in this day and age of social media? And, and what does that necessarily comprise? At Stella Monroe, we kind of do the lean startup approach. And if you're not familiar with that, basically you come up with a theory, you test that theory, and then change accordingly. To answer your question, we don't necessarily have the answer right now. We have, we've come up with a couple of really strong strategic ways that we want to go about it. We okay. are going to, we're currently testing that to see how it goes. We're going to take what works and continue with it. And then the things that don't work, we will tweak along the way. With that being said, um, there's still a huge appeal for the classic icons of this era. Um, Marilyn Monroe, you know, how many times do you see someone quoting her on Facebook? Or uh, Audrey Hepburn, how many times do you see pictures of her on Instagram? So I say that to say that there's still a very large appeal for this type of thing. There are companies and brands out there that still have these classic values uh, of elegance and grace that we're used to from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, Again, so it's about making people aware of, of it. Because, like I said, there's there's still a lot of appeal for that era. So you're in charge of the social media marketing of this. With social media, it's so easy for someone to put something out there. And how do you rise above the noise and and get noticed? So there's this. Uh, I've, I've heard it stated many times that in order for a consumer to actually click or somehow get attached to your brand that they have to see it upwards of 30 times before, you know, they're um, motivated to, to perform some action, you know, with your, with your particular business. How do you actually uh, go about that in, in the social media platforms? And, and, and so what's the strategic path that you take in order to accomplish that? Because at, at the end of the day, you, you offer products and services that you want to get out to the marketplace and they need to be consumed by people. Let me first say that managing a social media account, I don't want to say is an art, but it definitely is a full-time gig, which is funny to me because five to 10 years ago, people might've laughed at you. Even now you might get a, a chuckle or two if you say you manage a social media account, but to do it even halfway properly it it takes a lot because you have to always be on, right? You can't really take days off, especially today. I mean, even the biggest news in the world gets forgotten in almost a week's time, right. which is really sad and really scary. So to do it properly, and this is this goes across any any brand you're trying to build, um, any vertical, any space that you're in, it's a full time job. So one of the important things you have to do 
is know your audience, right? Um, know what you're trying to convey to them. So, for example, if you are running one for a sports platform, right, most of your content will be sports here. Don't put anything about animals. Don't put anything about music. Don't put anything about politics or news in there. And that se might seem obvious to some, but I've seen a lot of different companies that kind of get outside of that, of what their message is to their consumers. Well, one of the first things I would suggest you do is to identify, obviously, who you, who you want your target readers to be, right? And then what you have to do is find content that will appeal to them. You know, usually once a week, I will scan the, uh, the internet for articles, pictures, memes, things that we're doing, and just kind of compile all those things and try to set things a whole week in advance. Because like I said, you, you have to have a consistent presence on the web. Otherwise you will, you will get tuned out. Let's, let's go into that consistency a bit. So what, what would the frequency level be? So let's use, let's use Stella Monroe or Arltree as a, as a tangible example. What's the strategy and the implementation of that strategy? What would that look like? So let's use the Arltree as an example. It's, my musical taste runs the whole spectrum, runs the whole gambit. I love jazz. I love hip hop. I love Latin music, bossa nova, occasionally some classical. Uh, so it's kind of all over the place. So what, like I said, what we do, I'm also, I try to be pretty involved in our local music scene. So in terms of that, I may go out, take some pictures, take some audio of these local bands, uh, give them a little bit of shine so people know that there's things going on directly in their area that they can check out because a lot of people don't know. Uh, other times I'll go from a regional perspective. Perhaps there's a regional fest going on. We'll provide content about that, so an article about that. You have to have a good balance, and it's really trying to figure out that balance between having your own content that you're trying to get out, you know, in terms of your product or your message, and making it engaging and appealing enough that people want to come back and see things of a similar nature. So like I said, there could be a regional concert or music fest that's going on. You know, we would put that on there so that people can be aware of it and, and check that out. Okay. So for the RL tree in, in, in that example that you just listed, how often would you post and which social media platforms would you target, say, for for those posts? That's always tricky. And I, I would advise any company to kind of test out a lot of different theories because there's a fine line between being informative and current and then you're just spamming, you know, a person's timeline or the news feed. And so okay. it's finding that balance. Understanding that the balance is different for each each brand, each company, each product or service. But what is the balance that you have found that works for you in terms of Arl Tree? This is what I will say. When you're first starting out, I think it's almost a better idea to oversaturate and really establish your presence. Because so many companies, and I've been guilty of this too, and I go through phases, but so many companies will set up their page, they get all excited, you know, they put out a few tweets, they put out a few pictures on Instagram, and they get close to no engagement. And they get discouraged by that. I mean, it's happened to me. It may have happened to you. The thing is, you cannot get discouraged by that. You have to know that's part of the process, that it does take a long time to establish um, an engaging audience. It does take a long time to establish that brand. So the first thing is put out a lot. I'd say five to six things a day spaced out content. And again, mix the content between your own, the things you're doing within your own company, 
um, current events that pertain to your audience. So in this case, music, um, you know, pictures, memes, visuals. Again, a good mix of that five to six times a day, probably for the first probably 60 days. Okay. And and the reason for that, again, is to really establish your presence um, online and let your, your audience know that, hey, we are here. We're not just doing this for a week or two weeks or three weeks or even a month and we're going to disappear, that we're going to give you steady and uh, consistent content over and over. That way you're going to get a really good idea of what sticks, what people are drawn towards more, and then you can, again, kind of tweak it and filter it according to what you see. In terms of what platforms to use, you kind of have to go. There's, there's, It's crazy because there's a huge shift even in the last 9 to 12 months. I would, I would say all of them, but depending, you also have to know your product. You also have to know your audience. Right. Um, you have to go where the people are going. And I, and so it's kind of crazy because in the last, again, nine to 12 months, you're seeing this shift that moved from, you know, Facebook and Twitter to now it's Snapchat and Instagram. Those are the, 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 uh, the main platforms that people are going to. Um, I think Instagram is the fastest growing social media platform out there. Um, and so that is definitely one that I want to encourage everybody to get on and use, uh, especially if you're a product, uh, a fashion accessory of any kind, doing clothing, anything that's visual. So clothing, um, what else? Clothing, jewelry. Uh, fashion accessories, definitely u- utilize the Instagram platform. It's not enough to do that. You have to look where the trend is going. Um, and I've seen that Periscope seems to be what's going to be next. And so I would encourage everybody to, if you don't have one now, get on that platform now and start building your fan base there. So now listening uh, to you, so. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and then Periscope. So say those are you know the five biggies. There probably are more, but just so I'm, I'm putting out these these posts, you know, amidst these five uh, platforms a day, sixty days, and then you know we transition to um, a different frequency schedule. But how do I measure that I'm actually getting the bang for the buck? So you have to define your metric. To some, it might be email signups. To others, it might be you have to try to convert things to sales. To okay. others, it might be getting people to your blog. Um, so establishing that early um, is going to be key in, in knowing if your campaign is successful or not. Um, the other thing is, you know, if your metric is just engagement, are people commenting, retweeting, following, things of that nature. So setting those things up early is crucial in having a uh, successful social media presence and campaign. Okay, so so there because for for some of our listeners i'm not even sure if they were aware of of what those metrics are so just to recap we went through you know email capture possibly looking at the sales um the 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 for the sake of another word i'll say the throughput from your site maybe to affiliate sites that you have arrangements with and then the, the the engagement uh aspect so having those and having a a possible um expectation of what you feel your efforts should drive these through at the very beginning, then you can measure those to determine if these platforms are 
uh, are being effective in terms of what you're doing. If I do that for six times a day for the first 90 days, what kind of expectations should I, I have for that to know that I've reached a, uh, uh, an adequate level of effectiveness? I, I get this idea that um, advertising in social media now or just advertising in general, to me, the the effective metrics, it seems like that they're closely aligned with what we used to know back in the day as almost like mail order. Is that a valid correlation or, or am I off? So are we looking at penetration rates of uh, advertisement? Are we talking one per thousand, one per 10,000? You see what I'm getting at? If we correlate those to the effectiveness of what uh, uh, mail order marketing kind of uses as success. First things first, you have to know your target audience and know them well. Okay. And this is something I learned later on. You know, you have to really have a, a conversation with you or your team and literally write down what that person looks like. Are they black? Are they white? Are they Hispanic, Latino? Are they Asian? Are, what age group are they? Are, what age group are they? Um, how much do they probably make? What is their occupation probably? I mean, if to do it effectively, you really have to pin down exactly who your perfect person would be. Because if, and that way you can, you know exactly who you're going for, right? It's okay. not, we're just casting a net and seeing what comes, what we grab in there, right? We know okay. that we're going after X, Y, Z. And that, that way, and it took me a while to learn that. That's why I say that. That's the other thing. And once you have that, then like I said, you can make your content surrounding what that person would do. So for you, for an example, uh, as a programmer, right, if I was trying to catch your attention, I'm not going to send you something about some Nike cross trainers, right? I mean, right. because I don't think really you probably wear too many of those, right? So what right. my content would be would, again, be articles about Bitcoin, about startups, right, about uh, developers and and, and things in the technology world, right? Because you're going to be more likely to click on that and, and say, oh, this is interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first thing. The other thing I would say is, and this I've seen this so much um, in the last year and a half, is you have to have a realistic assessment of who you are and you have to have a realistic assessment of how other people view you. What I mean by that is, as founders of companies, we all have these great ideas of what we want our company to be. We all have these great ideas on what we think our company will be. But we have to realize that on day one, the only people that know or care about our company is you, maybe your family, and maybe your closest friends. No one else cares about your company but you. You have to realize that. You know, I think so many, and I've been guilty of this too, so many uh, founders and uh, business owners start thinking of their company, and this is a good thing to visualize it, obviously, as successful, but you have to realize where you are now. And so having that realistic uh, assessment of what, what you are and where you are now is going to help you so that you don't get your hopes too big. You don't get discouraged when, you know, after the 60 to 90 days, you only have 200 followers, right? You know, you hear all these these companies that get all this money from angels or VCs, and it seems like it happens overnight. But you have to realize that more most in most cases it did not happen overnight, and it was you know very strategic planning on their part. It's um, them knowing themselves and putting and doing the right things, taking the right steps. Um, 
you have to realize you cannot build a brand overnight. You cannot build a brand in 90 days. It's something that you have to chip away at every day. The key figure, as they say, is try to have a 20% month-over-month growth rate. Okay. And if you can do that, you're you're in the right right direction. And the good thing about that is starting out, you may only have 10 followers, right? And so 20% is only two more people, right? Right. Which is not great. Once you get to 100 to 1,000, right, that 20% is going to increase exponentially. And so if you view it as that, don't view it as a destination. Don't view your brand as once we get here, we've made it. Because there's no, no, even the most successful, even Apple, even Facebook, even, even, uh, Uber is still trying to grow their audience. That's one of the biggest things that I think, uh, founders of startups and, and early stage companies should remember. There, your company is not a destination. Once you get to a hundred thousand viewers or a hundred thousand followers, it's not like you made it, right? Because the right. goal is what? 250,000, a million, two million, right? So keeping that in mind, that should help you to not get discouraged. Use that as your way to continue on when you're not getting the engagement that you want, when you're not, your numbers aren't what you thought they would be. At a certain point, you do have to ask yourself, am I providing the right content? After the 90 days, you're not seeing very little progress. Then you have to do another assessment. You know, am I hitting the people I want to hit? Am I presenting my brand in a way that I want to be recognized as? Yeah, so it's about, you know, having self-assessment, you know, every 60 to 90 days. Um, but again, realize that it's a journey. It's not a destination. As a startup, you would probably need to have either enough time if you're performing this yourself and or enough money to pay somebody to perform these marketing efforts for you for probably at least six months to be able to say that you 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 had enough time to put content out, do a couple iterations of assessment and to readjust and to do it a few more times to be able to say, hey, I gave it a, a good go. My metrics just didn't pan out for me in terms of the engagement, the sales, the, you know, the other metrics that you had identified earlier. Those things are not growing and, and moving me closer to my goal. I guess that's part of the the process of being realistic. Would you say that that is accurate or or even or should it even be longer than that? I don't think you should necessarily put a six month or nine month on it. Okay. You know, you measure it by by progress, um, because to me, progress is progress. It may not be as long as you're moving forward. I think it's worth pursuing. I'm not a social media expert. Right. And I don't have enough time because I'm, I'm involved in doing other things. I don't know, have enough time to do it. So if I were to hire you, Walt, say you said, hey, I can manage this campaign for you. You know, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars a month. Then I have to budget in six grand for my social media strategist to implement this marketing campaign for me. Mm-hmm. So I need to know that going in, because if I don't have if, if I start off with the expectation that, hey, I can't even do this six months, nor do I have the, the capital to do it, I, I can't hire you. So after two months, I come back to you and I say, well, uh, I'm going to have to cut our engagement short because I, I ran out of funds. Then I haven't even given it enough time to go through the later assessments to see if I am getting that, that month over month, 20% growth. I have to count the cost of what it is that I'm doing. Am I going to be viable in the marketplace to even vet this idea and see if, if the market is receptive to 
what I'm offering. No, you make a you make a great point. It definitely takes money to get stuff done. And I say that because I'm a guy that will try to cut the corners as much as I can to save some money. I'm learning it takes money to do the marketing campaigns. It doesn't have to necessarily be a lot, but it does cost money. That's something that I would tell founders early on is that it does and will take some money. Knowing up front that there's some things that cost and and finding ways to best utilize that money uh, is going to be really helpful. Even if you do have a budget for a social media manager, I would encourage anybody to learn it themselves. If done properly, it's not a waste of money at all. Every founder, every business owner, everybody that's having a brand should learn how to manage a social media account themselves. There's so much that goes into it that people don't realize until you're actually in it. That makes sense. I, d- I definitely appreciate you giving us a lot of insight into that marketing piece there because I think it's really valuable to understand. And I'll close that part with this. Two friends of mine had startups and, and they were very successful. But I know as they try to launch a couple other businesses, one of the constant uh, problems that we ran into is that They'll build it and then they expect people to come. It was like we never really found the proper way how to market. And so, you know, having this discussion with you today, I can see some of the pitfalls that we made because in some cases we really just didn't have an effective marketing campaign that was executed with any level of regularity. And and, and it really wasn't defined that well. And there is really no strategic plan to it. You're just kind of shooting in the dark and hoping something that will stick. It it just it just didn't work. So all the time that was spent in building a product ended up being for naught. Right. Yeah. Let's go back a bit. Something you spoke about earlier. I know you're based out of Raleigh. Can you tell me how did you actually get involved with the startup scene in Raleigh? So I actually came across uh, the startup scene here in Raleigh by accident. Um, every year, there's an organization called Innovate Raleigh that puts on this huge summit that's geared towards entrepreneurs, startup companies, um, and, and early-stage companies. Um, and really one of the big initiatives is to really build that strong ecosystem here uh, that's, you know, present in Silicon Valley. And it serves as kind of a connector um, for companies and businesses, like I said, early businesses to uh, help each other. And so um, I attended that summit, fortunate enough to meet two people that got me plugged in uh, into the startup community. One of those was King White, a um, really smart guy, and, and, and sat down with me and kind of gave me the lay of the land. Uh, the other one is David Burkhart, and um, he, he might not even realize it, but he really went to bat for me and gave me a lot of really key introductions that – to be quite honest, he had no reason to do. Um, he just saw something in me, really went out of his way to help me out. Through that, like I said, I got plugged into the ecosystem and kind of been running ever since. Uh, why do you think Raleigh is growing in its popularity? What are some of the key drivers that's contributing to that success? Well, yeah, it's funny you, you said it that way because I've noticed that the startup scene is kind of like a, a world within a world, and they definitely opened up and um, brought me inside of it, and I'm very appreciative of that. You know, as you mentioned, it, it's really becoming a, a hotbed for technology and the startup scenes has made a concerted effort 
um, to really strengthen the ecosystem and, and give this really strong sense of community. I know in the bigger markets like Boston and Silicon Valley and Chicago, you know, you talk to people from down there and it's still very cutthroat. You know, you don't you don't really find that here. Obviously, everybody wants to, to do well. I think Raleigh is a natural fit to become a tech hub um, because we already had a lot of the infrastructure already laid out. Um, we have what's called the RTP, which stands for the Research Triangle Park. And so we already had the talent pool, but I think there's this shift that you're seeing a lot of people from those traditional corporate spaces are moving more towards the, um, the startup. So, but before you got into the startup scene, what were you doing and uh, what company were you with? And then second part to that question is what gave you the confidence uh, to make that leap from the corporate world into the, uh, to the startup entrepreneurial world? We have the RTP and I actually work for Lenovo, which is a pretty big PC company there. And while I really enjoyed it, as we kind of talked about earlier, I've always had a passion for music. At some point, that was something I always wanted to try to make a living doing. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I decided to take the leap. So yeah. once you took that leap and you got involved in this startup scene, what were some of the early experiences that you leveraged from some of those introductions that um, those two guys, they, they provided for you? So I had the great opportunity to work with a startup company that was based out of HQ Raleigh. While I enjoyed my time there, I still never lost that urge to kind of do my own project and set out on my own. And so that's kind of where we are to, at this point. Well, Walt, I definitely appreciated all the, uh, the insight that you shared about your, your two products, Stella Monroe, as well as the Oral Tree. And can you, again, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? I encourage anyone listening to connect with me on LinkedIn. You can also follow um, the Oral Tree's handle at the Arl Tree, that is for Twitter and Instagram, at Stella Monroe underscore, that's Twitter and Instagram as well. Well, Walt, uh, I do have one last request for you. I would like for you to send me uh, some of your music and so I can play it as a part of our segues here. I want them to hear you know, Walter Cole, the, the professional musician. So if you can send us some here, we, we would greatly appreciate that. All right, yeah, I'd love to do that for you. Okay. Well, again, thanks again, Walt. All right. Appreciate you having me on.